one thing that's necessary for to keep in mind is the purpose of the book. And this has been the, a verse that we've read each time. It's found in John 20, verses 30 and 31. Think on these things. Contemplate on these words. Consider these words and their import as we begin uh, the sermon this morning and we look at a story in the, and an encounter in the book of John. Because this is the purpose. This is the reason. Actually, it's the purpose and the reason for our being here this morning. It's the purpose and the reason for our existence. But John uh, states it succinctly in, in this particular book. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe these are written so that you may believe, not just in general, but specifically, that you may believe Jesus is the Christ, that Jesus is the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Now, John didn't write it, but I think that I have uh, safe grounds to suggest to you that not every encounter that Jesus had is written in this book. But just as the signs and the wonders that he performed had a specific purpose, this is the end results of it, that we might believe in the Christ, the Son of Jesus as the Son of God, that these encounters are purposeful. They're designed to teach us something about the Christ, about the Son of God, and that believing in the Christ and in the Son of God, we might have life in his name. This morning, we're going to look at the third chapter of John, if you'd like to turn there. <clears throat> I would suggest to you that perhaps this story is one of the most familiar passages in John. And if you're not familiar with it, hopefully you'll be familiar with it today. John perhaps uh, contains this story, the encounter of Jesus with Nicodemus. And I take for granted, uh, some of you are new to the faith. Some of you have not been in the church all of your life. Uh, I turned 72 on Monday. Happy birthday, John. <laughs> and over that, I, I tease, uh, I, I jokingly say that I was born on the front row. I'm the oldest of four children, and my dad was a pastor. And so my nursery was the front row. And if he needed to be the nursery keeper, he would, Jonathan, sit down. And if he needed, he would come down, and then I sat down. But uh, I've heard many sermons. I've been privileged, and, and I don't want to, of, of hearing sermon after sermon after sermon. I asked a question the other day, or the other night, about a, a passage, and one person in our congregation had ever heard, a, or at least acknowledged, they had heard a sermon from Romans on the, we're not given a subject to fear, but we've been in a spirit where we, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. And the whole point was how many, I, I don't know how many sermons I've heard on Abba Father with the summation is Daddy. And I, don't, I, I didn't mean to say that sarcastically, but so we, we, we looked at it. And so this is a familiar story to a lot of people who've been in the church. And what would you suggest, uh, yeah, somebody speak out. What would you suggest is the one verse 
pointed to that people, I mean in general, universally, that people would point to for the scriptures? John 3.16. Uh, maybe one of the first verses we, we have memorized. And so this book, this story, this encounter, and the discourse that will take place after our text today in this encounter are very familiar to the church, but we don't want to approach this familiar, we don't want to approach this text this morning with a, uh, a contempt bred by familiarity. You know what I mean? In other words, we've heard it so many times that we bring to what we're hearing all of the baggage that we've heard before. I, I don't plan to say anything new than what you've heard before, but may we, by the Spirit of God, hear it afresh, and may we hear it with power. Before we look at this encounter, I want us to back up to chapter 2. If you remember, we discussed Jesus' cleansing of the temple, and the, ask, the people asked him, give us a sign, and he said, and he pointed to his death and his resurrection. Destroy this temple, and I'll raise it up again. And then we have these verses found in verse 23 and 25. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself, in himself, by himself, knew what was in man. Just that statement, right? That's a theological statement, right? That Jesus, the God-man, was omniscient. We've already seen this when in the calling of, uh, I won't remember his name, <laughs> uh, back in the first chapter uh, when he called a guy and he, he says, I saw you, Nathaniel, he said, I saw you sitting under a fig tree. And then he said, a man with whom there is no guile. This is looking not only at seeing out into the future uh, as some uh, clairvoyant uh, but, but one who knew Nathaniel. He knew his character. He knew his faith. And we always have to make application just as he knows you and I. On the surface, this may a bit, be a bit confusing because the phrase, many believed in his name. Because of the signs he was doing, isn't this exactly the stated purpose in the verses that we looked at before? These signs are included that you may believe. But I would suggest to you that it's not a general belief, but a very specific belief. What, we don't know. You'd have to talk to an individual, and we're going to see one individual who saw the signs and what he believed. Uh, but specifically what John has said at the end of the day, that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, that he's the Son of God, and that believing in this, you might have life in his name. In the first case, you might know a set of facts, talking about faith, believing, without any commitment at all. I often use the example, I believe George Washington existed. I could probably tell you many facts, some true, some urban legend about George Washington. But I'd have to question myself, do I believe in George Washington? 
What is, what is the difference? One, I would suggest to you, is a general way of speaking, and I'm speaking in a very general way. The other demands a commitment to, a trust in, a dependence on, an identification with the one that we say we have faith in. Isn't it easy to focus on man when the gospel is written? The primary focus is not on the nature of man's faith, but on the person of Jesus. And we're going, to get, we're going to talk about Nicodemus, but this is not the gospel of Nicodemus. It's not just about this individual and where he is, but at the end of the day, at the end of the service, from beginning to end, this is about the Lord Jesus Christ. Both the signs and the encounter and the dialogue, the questions and the responses are to point us to the eternal Son of God. Here we're told something about Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to, the, to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. He knows us perfectly when we are so often deceived about ourselves, deceived about our emotions, deceived about our motives. Uh, the heart is desperately wicked. Who can know it? That's the plight of being under the fall and under the curse. The world is shrouded in darkness. Even as believers, it says that we see as in a glass dimly. Oh, but one day, when the veil is rent and, and we see him face to face, then we'll know, even as we're known. Throughout the rest of the book, Jesus will demonstrate again his perfect knowledge of the individuals with whom he would deal. If you're thinking ahead, you can think of the woman at the well. You can think of so many. His own disciples, when they thought they had the answers, oh, no, you won't follow me. You'll deny me. Jesus knew what was in man. He had no need because he was God. We worship the God who has come in the flesh. Now let's take a look at our text, beginning in verse 1. There, were, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know, here we get to what he knew from what he had seen, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these things you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. Nicodemus replies, he responds, and he says, how can these things be? And Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, and speak of what we know, and bear witness to what we have seen. But you do not receive our testimony. If I had told you earthly things, and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up in the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, 
that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Let's look over some of the facts that we have here. Just, just facts, and hopefully we can learn some things from the, the data. We talked about that in Sunday school. We're introduced to a man of the Pharisees. You might say he was religiously committed. He was a rigorous adherent to the law. The term Pharisee comes from the Hebrew and Aramaic porush, which means one who is separated. That's what our word holy means. He was, in, in the vernacular, a holy man. He was one who was separated from the world. Was he separated from the Gentiles? Most certainly. Was he separated from Jewish people who were less rigorous in the law? He probably thought so. And there was a great emphasis placed on that physical and perhaps intellectual and spiritual theological separation. We're given his name Nicodemus. He was a ruler of the Jews, perhaps part of the Sanhedrin. And finally, according to Jesus, he was a te the teacher of Israel. One further detail given was he came to Jesus by night. Okay, so we have this list of details, and uh, I've got, I don't know how many commentaries, in there, and they're full of what all of this means. But from this text, I think there's some things, and I'm going to share with you what some of the commentators say, especially about this deal of coming by night. Most people speculate that the reason, and it's a speculation, that the reason he came by night is because he was a Pharisee and he was a ruler of the Jews and he was concerned about how he might be perceived by the other Pharisees and perhaps the Sanhedrin. After all, Jesus was this nobody come out of uh, the north country, the back country, Nazareth, uh, whatever has, they say, whatever good has ever come from Nazareth, a little backwater town. And so to be seen in the, in the presence of Jesus might have been, I don't think that's it, maybe. Um, one thing that, there are a lot of things that we can't be dogmatic about, but there are observations that we can base our conclusions and our opinions on. And I say opinions loosely. One of the things that we know about the book of John, the gospel, and his epistles, and his writing of the book of Revelation is that the use, is his use of light and darkness. I mean, it's in the very first chapter. And we'll see that it'll come in the third chapter, Lord willing, next week. This contrast between light and darkness, and of course, Jesus is the light of men. And he came into a world that was filled with darkness. There's symbolism there. It's, I don't know if it's a metaphor or simply, but simile, but you know what I mean. He's speaking in terms that are not literal terms, uh, day and night, light and darkness. But he's speaking of the darkness of the heart, the darkness of the mind, the inability to perceive spiritual things. And I would suggest to you that Nicodemus he didn't have to say he came by night without explanation, but I think this is John's way of saying he came in the night of his soul. And it's demonstrated by his, what he believed in and then what he did not believe. On what grounds can we reasonably make this suggestion other than the literary form and use of light and darkness? Is what Jesus said. Did not the he he said he was a teacher of Israel. He sees the signs that Jesus 
did, and he cor correctly deduced this fact. Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these things <coughs> that you do unless God is with him. Okay, we can, we can say, give him a check. He got that right. But it's not enough, as we have already tried to demonstrate. Yes, he was right on all accounts. Jesus was from God. And Jesus will state this many times throughout the, the, the remainder of this book. And yes, God was with him. And he asserts this many times through the rest of this book. But facts, and even correct facts, are not enough. Intellect, intellectual assent is not enough. Interestingly, Jesus did not even acknowledge these correct facts. His response, I had a favorite, not favorite, I had a friend who was a preacher, and he never answered the question I asked him. He would always answer a question that I didn't ask him. And I'm sitting there, well, <laughs> he would just cut bizarrely, and this is basically what Jesus does to Nicodemus. He makes a statement about him coming from God, and what, what is, how does Jesus respond? Well, let's look at it. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. He shifts from his signs, he shifts from coming from God, and he shifts to a, 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 the most critical fact about any of us, the necessity of being born again. Jesus knew what was in Nicodemus, and he knew what was not in Nicodemus. It's reasonable to assume that Nicodemus both thought that he was a shoe-in to the kingdom. I had to look that word up. I knew it from somewhere. It was, it was a given. He was going to be in the kingdom because of his credentials. When it comes to the kingdom of David, for which he was looking, and I would suggest longing for, one final point is that like the Jews who asked Jesus for a sign, he like they thought they had it in their own power to judge Jesus according to the facts that they observed. It was, they saw, when Nazareth, I'm not Nazareth, Lazarus was raised from the dead, they did not deny the miracle, but they sought counsel together how they might kill Lazarus and kill Jesus. John and the other disciples, when they healed the uh, lame man at the gate, were drugged before the councils and condemned. And after they sent them out, they said, we've got to do something about this. A miracle has been done in Israel. And if we don't do something, everyone is going to believe. So seeing is not believing. We can't just take the facts and deduce from the facts spiritual life, as we will see. Much has been made of Nicodemus's, uh, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? On the surface, this is the most reasonable observation, okay, to the statement. But the statement, and we're going to see this again in another text, the statement is not made just by anybody. It's not like I came up and out of the blue from nowhere, I said, you must a man can't see the kingdom unless he's born again. Counter to everything that perhaps Nicodemus had ever thought or taught. But this is Jesus, the Son of God. He's just confessed that he's come from God, sent by God. Uh, God is with him. And yet he questions, and I would say he questions and pushes back in unbelief 
on Jesus' response. As if this is not so much nonsense. Jesus' response is to point to the fact that there is both a physical birth and also there is a spiritual birth. A generation of mother by mother and father and a generation or a regeneration of the Spirit of God. The spiritual birth is accomplished through the water and the Spirit. And there's much debate and discussion about what this means. I think they're pointing to the same thing. Uh, that which is never separated, and that's the water of the Word and the Spirit of God. If you've got the Spirit without the Word, you ain't got the Spirit. And if you've Spirit without the Word, and you've got the, well, okay, same thing the other way around. <laughs> okay, the spiritual birth is accomplished through the water and the Word. This is a head scratcher for sure, but before Nicodemus or we have time to process this, um, Jesus tells him, you must not marvel at these things. D.A. Carson contrasts this saying, and he says it this way, the focus here is not on the potential convert's humility, brokenness, or faith, but on the need for transformation, for new life from another realm, for the intervention of the Spirit of God. I get it. <laughs> I live in this world. I lost it this week with a subcontractor. I'm still debating whether I need to apologize to him or rake him over the coals again. But this life is hard. We struggle in this life. But this is not it. There is a spiritual realm, and that spiritual realm has broken into this physical realm and is broken into your life and my life by the presence and the person of the God the Holy Spirit. And as we look around and we look at the facts and we deal with the situations in life, I don't see the Holy Spirit. I, there's no uh, empirical evidence of the Holy Spirit. It's accepted by faith. And we'll see in a minute, perhaps, where that faith comes by. But before all of this can be settled, the dust is settled, Jesus continues, um, and I'll say this, in this passage, there's no command to do anything. He didn't say, he said, you must be born again. He didn't say, be born again. As if this was something that Nicodemus could do of himself. But then he goes on and he says it this way. <clears throat> Jesus plants the seeds, or let me go back to my notes. In this passage, there's no command to do anything but the express necessity of the Spirit of the living God to do for Nicodemus what Nicodemus could not do for himself. Jesus plants the seeds of the reality of the free, free, and what I mean by the freedom that God has to be God. The freedom that God has to do what he plans to do. We call it the sovereignty of God. There is no power greater than the power of God because he is God. And so he is free to act as he freely acts. But what we are comforted with is it is always in grace and mercy to those who believe in him. And he says it this way. He said, the wind blows where it wishes. 
coming up here this morning and the wind was whipping and it was blowing Vivian's hair in her face. We had no control over the wind. The only thing we can do is get out of the wind. But the wind blows where it wishes. You hear it sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born with the Spirit or born of the Spirit. Okay, it's the freedom of the Holy Spirit. I want you to mark the following question by Nicodemus. How can these things be so? What I mean is to hold on to the question, for it is perhaps as much a statement as a question. You can say, how can these things be so? Or you can say, how can these things be so? Maybe I'm not doing that right, but one is in belief. One is a genuine question, and the other is really a statement. I don't believe this. This is a bunch of malarkey. Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. That's why I say he knew him, and he knew. It. Later, I believe that Nicodemus came to faith. And everything that we're talking about this morning, and everything that Jesus said became clear to him. Crystal clear? But he knew for certain that it was not something he brought to the table. But it was, some, it was a work, and an independent work uh, of the Holy Spirit. These are shocking words to hear from Christ, the Son of God. You do not receive our testimony. There are different interpretations of what comes next, this, this we. And you can see it here, we speak, we know, we have seen. I confess, I can't be dogmatic, but would suggest that throughout the gospel there is a unity between what the Father says and what the Son says and what the Father is doing and what the Son is doing I would be so bold as to suggest a Trinitarian speaking. Now, I say that, and I left out that some people believe that Jesus was somehow responding to Nicodemus as, we believe that you've come from God. It was kind of an echoing, I, I don't know, I don't know if that's true or not true, but what I do know is throughout this gospel, we're going to see that the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit work in concert in every aspect of our redemption, our justification, our sanctification, and our adoption. He says, if I had told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Again, I don't think Nicodemus understood what he was talking about. In fact, throughout the gospel, one of the things that's marked about the disciples is they didn't get it. It was not until the death and then the resurrection and then the teaching and the reunction of the Holy Spirit and Jesus teaching his disciples that all of these things, all of the Old Testament, the prophets, uh, the, uh, the wisdom literature was written and they speak about me. He would come to know by the work of the Spirit. Here he challenges him concerning his understanding. After all, he was a teacher of Israel. Whatever Nicodemus had been teaching, it was not the necessity of the new birth to see or enter the kingdom of God. The suggestion is that he should have known, and yet he didn't understand and receive Jesus' testimony. One thing interesting, when confronted with unbelief, 
how briefly, and we won't expound on this, Jesus does what? He points to the scriptures to speak to the future. He goes back to Moses, and you know the story of the brazen serpent, the children of Israel, because of their murmuring, were afflicted with poisonous snakes, and then Moses was commanded to build this serpent and put it, brazen serpent, and put it on a pole and raise it up, and those who looked upon it were physically healed. I think he's probably doing several things. One, he's carrying Nicodemus to the scriptures, and he would have known that story. And he would have known commentary on that story. And he had his own views and his own opinion and he had, uh, of what that means. But Jesus was saying, this is pointing to something future. This is pointing to when the Son of Man should be lifted up. That should have rung a bell, the Son of Man. In the first chapter, we have the Son of Man ascending and descending, looking back to Joseph, you know, when he was fleeing for his life. And here he uses the term son of man. He should have thought perhaps about Daniel and the use of the word son of man, this title that Jesus was accepting for himself. And he should have thought about Ezekiel, the priest prophet who was referred to as a son of man. And in just a few short minutes, we're going to look at Ezekiel. First chapter 36 and then briefly at chapter 37. Chapter 36, verse 23. Nope, got to back up. All right, put on your seatbelts. <laughs> put it in overdrive. Read along, and it'll make more sense than listening to my voice. Uh, 36, give you a minute to get there. Now, this is all coming from Jesus' use of the Son of Man and that you should have known these things because I think this is, speaks to exactly what Jesus was talking about. And we find it in the Old Testament. Ezekiel speaking, he says, The word of the Lord, verse 16, The word of the Lord came to me, Son of Man, when the house of Israel lived in their own land, they defiled it by their ways and their deeds. Their ways before me were like the uncleanness of a woman in her menstrual impurity. Scriptures can be very graphic. So I poured out my wrath upon them for the blood that they had shed in the land, for the idols with which they had defiled it. I scattered them among the nations, and they were dispersed through the countries. In accordance with their ways and their deeds, I judged them. When they came to the nations, wherever they came, they profaned my holy name. In that, the people said of them, these are the people of the Lord, and yet they had to go out of the land. It's a mockery of the name of God in what they saw in the people of God. I think it was just last Sunday, Chuck shared the story of being in the church and a leader in the church, someone he had looked up to. He didn't, he didn't expound on it, but it failed. There was a moral failure or some kind of, doc, I don't know what it was. He didn't say. But what he was pointing to is the discouragement he suffered as a young person because of the deeds of someone he looked up to. And so this is, what is, this is what's going on here. When we sin in the world, I don't know how many people, I'd go to church, but it's filled with so many hypocrites. Well, it is. 
is filled with a brood of vipers. I mean, it's people, but these people have been born of the Spirit of God. And it's not all dark. God has done a work. He has accomplished it, and we could enumerate on that, even in our own congregation. Then skipping down to verse 22, Therefore say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. I don't know how to say this gently, coming from the churches and some of the backgrounds I have come from, but there's a very sentimental view of the love of God that, and I've heard this, if you were the only person in the world, Jesus would have died for you because he loved you. Brothers and sisters, he does love you. The scriptures teach it. But he does what he does for his glory. What is the chief end of man but to glorify God and enjoy him forever? And we reduce it to us and his pity and God knows what he's doing. He's decisive, and he does according to his will and his purposes in a keeping with his righteousness and his holiness. And so he set his love, not only the greatest of nations, but the least of all people. Why? So that he might demonstrate his faithfulness, his fidelity to the people to whom he had made a promise. We should find comfort in that. Then in verse 36, he says, <coughs> I mean, excuse me, verse 23, I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which, he is, which has been profaned among the nations, and which you have profaned among them. All the nations will know. This is, this is why is John written? So that you might know that he's, there's some things that you need to know, that he is the Christ, the son of the living God. And, believe and he says here, all the nations will know, I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. We've been going through the book of Romans, and it talks about the creation groans, and it waits for redemption and the revealing of the sons of God, the sons of light. There's a time coming when all of the mystery and all of the wonder and how is it the church can be, and, and the things that we can't see, that to his glory we will be seen as trophies of his grace and his mercy. He says, I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I, and notice this, we'll, I'm going to have to stop here in just a minute, but uh, just think real quick, the Tower of Babel, come let us make us, we, 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 we will do this. It goes to the next chapter, the calling of Abraham. Abraham, I will make you a great nation. I will exalt your name and through you, and I'll bring you into a land. All of the promises, I will versus man's will. He says, I, and here's that language, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Jeremiah, he talks about this very thing. 
God has written his righteous principles, his character on tablets of stone. And in the new birth, he writes them on our hearts so that we have no need of men to tell us what's right and wrong. God himself bears witness to us by his spirit that we are his, and he causes us. It's not a twisting, an arm twisting. Everybody here, I think, for the most part, I assume is here on their own volition. Why? This is the craziest thing that you could possibly do on a Sunday morning in the eyes of the world. Why you? Why me? Because the wind blows where it wills. And he has blown into your life. Some of you, all of our, well, some of us are raised in the church, born on the front row. But some of you come from very dark situations. And there's no reason apart from the sovereignty of God and his love and his will and his purposes and his desire to pour out his spirit and give you a new heart. It simply means that a heart that was in rebellion against him, a heart that cared little about him, that did not consider him, he put his love on there and he did a work within your heart. He gave you a desire. We look sometimes at our, and we should look at our failures and confess our sins. But also give credit to the Holy Spirit who's put a new heart and a new set of desires. When it comes to free will in a class I was teaching where they were Arminian in, in, in doctrine, I said, how many of you want to love the Lord Jesus Christ with all your heart, mind, and soul? And every, every person, yeah, raise their hand. That's, that's what I want to do. I said, well, why don't you do it? If it's within your power to do what you want to do and you don't do it, we just covered that in Romans, right? Then where do you look? Who's going to deliver me, old wretched man that I am? Thanks be to God. There's no condemnation. The secret is to be in Christ Jesus, and that comes by new birth and regeneration. I'm going to close. I am going to close. The next chapter, we won't go there. He's taken from the mountaintops where he's prophesying to, and set down in the middle of the valley of dead bones. I said the scriptures could be graphic. It's a vision. But everywhere around him, he sees these dead bones. And then to emphasize it, he says they're dry dead bones. They have been there. Some of them have covered. When I was reading this, I couldn't help but think of the Westerns I used to watch. You know, they got a cow skull out there in the middle of the desert and, and the guy's thirsty. These are dry, dry, dry dead bones. And then he asked him a question. He said, Ezekiel, can these bones live? Now, if I had asked Ezekiel that question, or you had asked Ezekiel that question, he said, are you crazy? But he was cognizant that it was the Lord God who was asking him that question. He said, Lord, you know. You know, so many times we use it as a manner of speaking. Something will happen and say, well, God only knows. Well, there's more truth than that than we are probably acknowledging at the time. But Ezekiel, he'd seen a vision of these chariots, God and his war chariots. He'd seen, God, he'd seen many visions, and God had spoken to him. He, God told him, I'm going to send you to a people, and they're not going to believe a word you say. But they'll know that there was a prophet in the land because he was speaking the word of God to them. Anyhow, by way of application, when God says something is not only possible but inevitable, because he that has begun a good work in you will complete it. We can say, 
of our dry bones. God, you have breathed life into us. And I wish we had time to go through there because he prophesies over the bones. He uses the word of God to bring these dry bones, in their picture of Israel in their exile, back to life. And he breathes in them. He prays to the, prophesies for the, for the breath of God to come, which is the wind of God, which in the Hebrew is ruach. It was the spirit of God that hovered over this chaos world. And then God speaks. The word, if you look it up, look at your concordance. When God came in the cool of the evening, the word there is ruach. The wind of God, the breath of God came and communed with Adam and Eve. There was, then they find themselves hiding in the woods. Okay, summary. God is spirit. We've come. What, what, why are we, what do we call this? Our worship service. We've come to worship the one true and living God. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit. That's what we've been talking about. That's what Jesus was saying. You must be born of the spirit. That's what we see in Ezekiel. He says, worship or an expression of worship can and does come from one of two sources. Did you get that? Worship or expressions of worship come from one of two sources. Uh, a couple sermons ago, it was about the Thessalonians, and they had turned from the worship of idols to the worship of the living God. Ungodly people worship. Everybody worships and loves things. Usually it's self-worship. And the inducement to worship is self-gratification. So I would say it has its source in one of two places. Worship, every man's worship comes from either the flesh or it comes from the spirit. The flesh, with its desire, prompt, provocation, and empowerment, is a fleshly worship. Fleshly worship is a response to the prompting provocation and empowerment by the flesh and its desires. Does that, does that make sense? You understand what I'm saying there? When I say the source, there are things in the world that our flesh are attracted to. It's not been eradicated. It's still there. But there's a new spirit and a new heart. And a, and a spirit that's in us is at war with that flesh. But in our worship and in our expressions of worship, it can come from one or two sources, either our flesh or from the spirit. It is the only kind of worship that the unregenerate can exercise. A few weeks ago, we heard this truth, that we worship what we love. True worship has its source in the Spirit of God. We cannot, nor should we try to generate worship from within our own imagination and our inclinations. We have to be very careful here. We believe in what we call the regulative principle, which is how we worship the the different elements of our worship. False and fleshly worship is, is an independent effort. Come let us make. We will ascend unto God. Worship that is in the spirit and truth is dependent for its source and power on the spirit of truth. Spirit-induced worship is a response. We are never the initiators. We love him because he first loved us. He said, we followed you. And he says, I called you. I knew you. And you're here because of the work that I have done. Spirit-induced worship is a response to the truth as the spirit illumines and impresses our minds and hearts 
to the perfections, purity, beauty, and the glory of the triune God. If I don't have the ability, but there are men who could come up here and stand here and have you standing on your feet, dancing in the aisles. And there are men who could come in here and they could have you on your knees. But it's the Spirit of God and a response to God himself that is true worship. Even our desire for worship comes from an encounter with God. In response to God's prompting to lead and to live in this world, Moses requested to have God's presence with him. He was told to go. He was told to do. He was told to live in this world. And he said, God, don't, I won't go unless you go with me. To know his name. He wanted to know his name. He wanted to see his glory. When God responded by declaring his name before him, what was the spontaneous response? He fell on his knees in worship before the living God. Worship is not purely cerebral, but involves the totality of our being. It involves our minds. It involves our hearts. It involves our will, and it involves our bodies. It may be expressed exuberantly, singing, or it may be expressed in heads that are bowed in awe of a fearsome and all-consuming fire. But it should be expressed in insurance of the love of God, that the creator of the universe who made us and set his love upon us has our interest in mind. Beloved, the kingdom will, will be consumed with spirit-filled worship, and we will behold the God, the Son of God, God the Son, face to face. But without the new birth, no one will see or enter into the kingdom. But the love and the grace God's sovereignly, by his love and grace, God sovereignly births from above those that he has given to the Son. The only way that I can be a part in leading you in worship is pointing to the glory and the majesty and the wonder of the one who is worthy of worship. And it's got a consequence. We'll go out and serve him. And we've been consumed with his love and, and who he is. We'll go out and serve him. Let's pray. Our gracious God and Father, again, we express our dependence, not only for our salvation, but for our sanctification and our day-to-day -day walk and in our worship upon the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of truth. So speak to us that which is true, that we may honor and glorify you. We'll give you the praise and the glory in Jesus' name. Amen.